This week's TribCast is sponsored by Lone Star College is addressing the shortage of highly trained nurses with world-class healthcare programs. More at lonestar.edu slash healthcare. And Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute has issued the first in a series of reports on mental health impacts of a COVID recession. More at texasstateofmind.org. Hello, and welcome to the July 15th edition of the Texas Tribune TribCast. This is Alexa Uda. I'm joined this week by politics reporter Alex Samuels. Hi there. Tribune CEO Evan Smith. Hi, Alexa. Hi. And managing editor Matthew Watkins. Hello. All right. Well, happy day after the election, y'all. Can we agree that covering an election from home is very, very weird? It was too quiet in my house. There wasn't enough junk food going around. Yeah, I did not like it at all. (laughs) I I loved it. I liked it. Of course you did. I thought it was kind of fun. You don't, you don't like being around people, Evan. I was about to say, I hate everybody. And so be, not being around, like the pandemic in that way has been like the greatest thing in the world. Wait, I don't have to actually be with anybody? This is amazing. Um, oh, but I you, guys, you guys did a great job on covering those elections. Thank you. It was indispensable. Well, I don't know how Matthew's getting through today as a non-coffee drinker is all I'm going to say. I feel like you should start before November. I honestly don't know how I get through any day right now. <laughs> Well, on that note, (laughs) so obviously some things have been moving this morning as candidates continue to either concede and we are still keeping an eye on some very, very close races where mail-in ballots all of a sudden are much more important than they normally are. Uh, But let's kind of start with what your overall impressions of the election were, you know, either from a political standpoint or from a voting standpoint, which I obviously care a little bit more about. Um, Matthew, do you want to start us off? Yeah, you know, I feel like my takeaway from this election, at least from a political standpoint, is that it's really hard to come up with a takeaway. It really feels like kind of a mixed bag of results here. Um, You know, the top line race um, went somewhat as expected. The U.S. Senate Democratic runoff, um, MJ Hager pulling off a a fairly close win against Royce West. Um, The congressional races, which were also very interesting, kind of a mixed bag. You know, you saw on the Democratic side in particular some some more of the kind of like grassroots energy uh, being victorious, whether that was Mike Siegel winning in House District 10 or... um, uh, Candace Valenzuela in 24 with a really big win over Kim Olson. Um, you know, on the Republican side, we're seeing some guys who um, were kind of left uh, D.C. Um, under not great circumstances, whether it was Pete Sessions losing his seat in Dallas, now looking like he'll probably come back with a new seat in Waco after moving 100 miles south. He won that runoff in a, you know, solidly Republican seat. And then you've got Ronnie Jackson, the... Uh, um, at one time nominee for VA of secretary, uh, or secretary, VA secretary, um, who, uh, had to withdraw his nomination now looks like he'll likely be a congressman. Uh, so, you know, uh, some interesting races, you know, I think the one that's still kind of still out there, Tony Gonzalez, Raul Reyes and house district 23, um, right now separated by seven votes, uh, Tony Gonzalez, the Trump supported candidate. Uh, with the lead over Raul Reyes, the uh, Ted Cruz-supported candidate. 
that one will be fun to watch in the next few days. But um, I don't know. I mean, do you guys see any any big like this was the narrative of last night? Because to me, it feels a little bit mellow. Um, I kind of agree with Matthew. I don't think there was. Alex, sorry, you're cutting off. You're in and out. Um, I don't know. I think. I think maybe Alex's Wi-Fi is on the Texas Secretary of State network. <laughs> it's normally Matthew who has technical problems. Matthew has other problems. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> All right, Alex, try talking to Last him. chance, Alex. Can you hear me? Yes. <laughs> Alex, tell me you, your uh, general impressions from last night. Um, I agree with what Matthew said previously. It was which was that there wasn't any through line that really stood out to me other than sort of the secretary of state sort of letting us down in a way, um, but then finally getting it back together later in the night. Um, but like Matthew said, you know, we saw a lot of wins on the grassroots side uh, for Democrats. We saw a lot of progressive candidates win. And then we saw a lot of Trump back candidates, whether it be Ronnie Jackson or Tony Gonzalez. I know that race right now is kind of too close to call, but we did see a lot, um, you know, on both sides, whether it be the far left or, you know, candidate two or farther right doing really well. And I think it was actually Evan who tweeted yesterday that the grassroots are alive and well. So I guess if there's any takeaway, that would be mine. Yeah, you know, I, I do think that the grassroots thing is 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 the big takeaway from last night, Alexa, honestly. Um, you had Candace Valenzuela, you had Mike Siegel, you also had Jose Garza who uh, won the Travis County DA uh, Democratic runoff. I swear to God, I looked away from the computer at seven o'clock for a second, and then I looked back, and Margaret Moore was already conceding. It had yeah. to be the fastest resolution of a race, you know. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, Empower Texans is dead. Long live Empower Texans. Both Dan Flynn and J.D. Sheffield go down, right? So you end up with... Um, in uh, some Republican runoffs on the House side, uh, uh, candidates backed by the grassroots on the Republican side. So it was actually a pretty good night for the grassroots. Matthew, um, I don't know what the outcome of that T uh, TX23 um, uh, congressional race is going to be, Gonzalez and Reyes. You know who's not going to be seven uh, 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 votes apart in the fall? Gina Ortiz Jones and either of these guys. Right? <laughs> yeah. One of the interesting things about this. Uh, runoff and what it tells us about November is that there are legitimately three or four congressional races, not if everything collapses, but just like if nothing collapses, there are legitimately three or four congressional races that could flip, right? Um, you know, I, I tend to be a disbeliever in the theory that Allred and Fletcher are in trouble. I think that what happened in the last cycle is that those districts went from red to blue and it's really gonna be hard to get them back to red. But the uh, her District 23, the Wendy Davis-Chip Roy race is a legitimate race if only because her money advantage over him is so significant and she's not just any candidate. I think the Valenzuela race in 24 against Beth Van Dyne is a really interesting race. And Shri Kulkarni against Troy Nels in 22. Those are all districts that have been Republican held that have the potential to flip. So Alexa, a takeaway there is it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about Texas did not elect a woman to a full freshman term in Congress for 22 years before 2018. And then Veronica Escobar and Sylvia Garcia got elected 
and there are potentially three more women who are going to get elected this time. And the and the balance between the parties may actually narrow some more. So pretty interesting race, I thought. I was going to say one thing I just thought of as a possible through line, and I actually brought this up to Matthew earlier, was that it was a really good night, I think, for women of color um, on the congressional side. You know, Donna Imam, Candace Valenzuela, I believe it's Lulu Sakali. I might be butchering her last name there, um, but she's running to replace or running to, you know, get rid of Van Taylor. Um, so I'd say it was a good, you know, night on their end too. You have Seema Lajavardian in uh, Texas too against Dan Crenshaw. You actually have women of color kind of up and down the. Look, I mean, one one absolutely definite thing about this cycle, not just the runoff, is that the diversity among the candidates. You know, you've got a black Republican running against Lizzie Fletcher in Houston, right, uh, uh, for Congress. Um, you've got really good, I think, relative to the recent election cycles, you've got pretty good diversity on the ballot um, uh, in the fall. And that's a hopeful sign that it's going to start to look a little bit more like Texas. Yeah, I think that the congressionals in particular are really interesting because we've spent so much time talking about the seats in the House that could flip. And I think it maybe hadn't registered with me as much as until last night when I was looking at some of these numbers come in is that there are so many interesting races on the congressional side, seats that were drawn to not be battleground seats, but to be, you know, pretty reliably in one column or the other. After 10 years of population change, you are seeing some of that stronghold change. I think the Valenzuela seat in particular is really interesting, uh, not just because of the two candidates that are going to face off, but if you you know, maybe it's too simplistic to think of them as proxies for the electorate in that district. But when you think about the growth in the North Texas suburbs in particular, and what that means, and the demographic change, and what that means for some of these seats, that could be a really interesting one to watch in November that maybe wouldn't have been on our list, you know, a few elections ago. Yeah, I mean, it's funny how um, TX23 was kind of, you know, for most of this decade, the kind of swing the one swing seat the one. in, in one. texas yeah and now it's like you know that honestly you know i don't know how anyone can look at that race and not think of gina ortiz jones as the favorite you know and uh, oh, she's overwhelmingly the favorite in that district yeah yeah you know yeah it, it, it's you know maybe not among the top three most competitive races right now um you know I, it's still very competitive i'm i'm particularly interested in the fort bend county one where uh troy nels will be going up against um Cole Carney, um, you know, Nell's a well-known figure in that race, but uh, he just, you know, had the last few weeks having Kathleen Wall spend her, uh, you know, millions of her own dollars just savaging him with commercials uh, now that, you know, only to lose by 40 percentage points in that race. But, you know, that's oh not God. a not a way that you want to be going <laughs> into the, the general election where your 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 candidate there has just been like really beaten you know, hard with these negative ads, uh, you know, there's all, up and, and all now the it has, it has no money to show for it. Now yeah. he has like $33,000 in the bank. The Republicans built a Kathleen wall and Troy Nels is paying for it basically. Right. <laughs> right. 30, he has 33, <laughs> he has 33. I just thought of that one right in the moment, Alexa, I saved the best stuff for you. Impressive. Um, um, he has $33,000 uh, on hand. And I believe that Sri Kulkarni has over a million dollars on hand. Yep, in a yep. district that flipped significantly in the last cycle to the extent that you now have KP George as the county judge, a Democrat, 
um, uh, in uh, in Fort Bend County. I mean, it's really pretty interesting to think of what, how that race is so significantly in play. Um, look, the other thing, Alexa, that happened yesterday is that 955,000 Democrats turned out to vote in the runoff, which obliterated the previous record, which was from 94, and more than doubled the Democratic runoff turnout during the gubernatorial runoff in 2018. So I don't know what happened. I mean, this is in the middle of a pandemic, right? So, I mean, that that to me has a real in- interesting uh, uh, potential um you know, message for the fall, like what's the fall going to be like? Yeah. Right. And I think, I think there's also an interesting question of, you know, mail-in balloting has been used kind of pretty rarely in the state. It's only, a, it's usually like 10% of, of total votes. But if you think about this, like ramp up that the runoff basically serves as for November, there are people who are voting for the first time by mail who submitted their applications for this runoff and checked off annual application, which means that they are set for November to get a mail-in ballot then. And they're, you know, obviously when you look at age breakdown um, in terms of the electorate, the 65 plus uh, crowd tends to be more white. And we know that, you know, based on Texas patterns, those folks tend to be more likely to be Republicans. But I, I, I'm so intrigued by the increase in mail-in balloting, particularly in, in places like Harris County, and what that means for the electorate come November, and what that and how the runoff ends up sort of serving as a ramp up for turnout in November, even among mail-in balloting, like before you even get to the crazy turnout that we're going to probably see then. So let's talk about the the U.S. Senate Democratic primary a little bit more. MJ Hagar declared victory last night to take on John Cornyn in the fall. Royce West waited until this morning to concede. You know, the, the matchup sort of got a little bit tense toward the end. I keep thinking, you know, are most voters even paying attention yet to this? And I, I'm curious if you all think whether a Hager-Cornyn matchup plays out differently than a West-Cornyn matchup would have. And does and, and do, the, do the questions that we have now after the runoff in that regard, like, do those change over time as you think about the November general when you're going to have a very, very different electorate than the one that turned out for, for the runoff? You know, I think that neither of the two candidates has really shown themselves to be a major political force yet. You know, I, uh, you know, after the results came out last night, it was, you know, fairly close. And you saw from kind of the Republican, the Cornyn camp, you know, MJ Hager is outspending Royce West by these, you know, crazy amounts only to kind of narrowly squeak out a victory. Um, Hager has, you know, is clearly kind of the establishment choice. You know, the, the folks in Washington, uh, you know, wanted her to come out of this race. Uh, she impressed people in 2018 with a, you know, a closer than um, expected margin in a suburban district, uh, you know, north of Austin. Uh, she uh, has has done a decent job of raising money. Um, she, but really, ever since her kind of debut campaign ad, which you know basically went viral and 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 got a lot of people to pay attention to her, she she hasn't you know, shown me a lot that she's, you know, kind of a singular force that can kind of gin up the excitement of, of the folks like the the Betos that you've seen in the past. I think there's a decent question of that, whether you even really need that, because you've got Donald Trump at the top of the ticket this year. Um, and 
but uh you know i i haven't seen much from from either of them to say that you know this race was going to shape up so completely differently uh depending on who won that race last night yeah i mean i think one thing that i've been thinking about is you know we talk about the the white suburban vote um the white suburban women vote that is moving away from donald trump and how that plays out in the senate race if you think of you know thinking about the sort of voters that Hagar has maybe already tapped into versus the room for improvement that's left for November. Does she, is she able to get the support of uh, black and Hispanic voters in larger numbers, knowing the difference that they make to democratic turnout, or does it not really matter that her name is on the ballot instead of West because Donald Trump is at the top of the ticket. And luckily for the Senate candidates, they are right under that race on the ballot. And so they don't even need to really worry as much as lower ballot candidates when it comes to drop off without straight ticket voting. You'd love to have straight ticket voting in this cycle if you're MJ Hager, right? You'd love to have that Biden poll and then go down. Look, I think the Biden race, which if you look at the four polls that have come out in the last two weeks in Texas, the race is somewhere between Trump plus four and Biden plus five. This is going to be a very close race. Even the president's favorite Cable news network, One American News, had a poll out yesterday that had the president up by only one point in Texas. We have a real race in our hands. You know, Matthew talked about Beto earlier. What Beto did last time was lose but keep it close. And then the Democrats won a bunch of races south of him on the ballot. That may very well be what happens in the presidential race. I will say that I think that Cornyn runs probably a couple of points ahead of the president in Texas, no matter what the outcome of the presidential race is here. And the, the eventual winner of that Senate runoff was going to be a beneficiary of the fact that people are going to turn out in larger numbers to, to, to vote for Biden. I do think that um, that there is one difference, and that is, like Biden, Hager may not be the most exciting candidate, but also there aren't a lot of sharp objects on the table that give people reasons to vote against them. And you know what? What the Democrats are, are assuming, I think, will happen is that really Trump's opponent in this race is Trump as much as Biden. It's a referendum on the president. And to the degree that people link the Senate and the enabling of Trump um, to Cornyn, in some ways, Trump is the person Cornyn is, Cornyn is running against more than the ultimate Democratic winner. I just think that the Cornyn race is going to be the hardest thing. The Democrats are looking to pull off a bunch of things this fall, win the state at the presidential level, take back control of the Texas House, flip a bunch of congressional seats, and win the Senate race. The Senate race is fourth of four, in my mind, in the order of probability. It's the hardest one, not impossible. I was going to say, I just wonder if Hagar winning the primary, uh, especially since she had so much outside spend um, from groups like Emily's List and the DSCC, I might be getting that acronym wrong. I wonder if, you know, those groups are obviously going to stay in the race now that he is the nominee. And I wonder if Royce had one, if he would have the backing, you know, if the DSCC would just change their mind and, you know, suddenly support him and of money his way the same way that they did for Hagar. So I do think that now that she's the nominee, she will have a little more outside support than I, you know, we can, whatever we can predict Royce may have had if he had won. Yeah, and the last the last point on this, Alexa, is that you have a lot of competitive Senate races nationally that are going to be competing for the kind of dollars Alex is talking about. You've got Colorado and Arizona, which are basically over, if you, if you believe the conventional wisdom. Democrats are going to win those. But you've now got Montana, Iowa, two races in Georgia, 
South Carolina, North Carolina, Maine. Texas falls pretty far down that top 10 list in terms of the most competitive races. So a negative for either Hager or West, now for Hager as the winner, is a lot of that outside money is going to be in serious competition in other states, right? They're going to be thinking about where do we put money in and how is that money best spent? That's probably a negative aspect of it. All right. Well, before we move on, we've got two more sponsors to go to. Texas Association of School Business Officials. Discover the heroes behind the scenes that help make Texas schools run efficiently at tasbo.org gr. And Texas 2036 rolls out 36 goals linked to Texas's prosperity. Support these and help shape our state's future. Visit texas2036.org shaping our future. So going uh, down the ballot a little bit more, we saw State Senator Eddie Lucio make it out of a primary challenge from his left. We saw some House incumbents go down after facing challenges from their right. Alex, in in one of your stories, uh, you quoted one of the candidates describing these sort of primary challenges as a a war that would slowly be won and, and depicting some of these individual challenges as kind of battles along the way. How are you uh, assessing these quote unquote battles after last night? Um, as far as, um, you know, with the Lucio race and that, you know, him facing a challenge from his left flank, I know, um, when we talked to Sarah Staple Timbrera, I believe it was a few weeks ago, you know, prior to the results last night, she had sort of said that, you know, every progressive win in the state, they inch closer and closer. And I think we saw that a little bit last night, you know, we saw Siegel win, we saw Valenzuela, as we mentioned, Jose Garza, um, and Sarah Staple Timbrera was, you know, pretty close in her bid. I think um, in the end, she was about five or six percentage points behind Lucio. I haven't looked at the final results this morning, but it was a close-ish race. And she did, you know, say that she does absolutely plan to run again. I don't know whether it'd be. I definitely think the progressive movement in Texas is strong. And I think, you know, because of what's been happening in the world as far as vote by mail, you know, for peace reform and the coronavirus pandemic, they are sort of using that to their advantage and to tout the causes that um, have been important to that side of the Democratic base now for a long time. Yeah. Was anyone um, else expecting to be writing a different story about Eddie Lucio in particular, or are we still just waiting on whatever else Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick has to say about the outcome of that race. What, what else? What was he talking about? I'll have more to say about this tomorrow. What was he, what's he going to say? Eddie Lucio is Batman? I mean, what's he going to tell us? That we already Matthew, do you have any idea what, what he's got cooking? No, I, I have no idea. You know, I think it's probably safe to assume that, uh, you know, Lucio keeps that seat um, whenever he leaves that seat. You know, if he if he makes the decision um, to retire at some point or or voted out that whoever whoever comes next would would likely be uh, not as centrist as him. You know, he's kind of he almost Maybe feels like a, a little bit more liberal, also named Lucio. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Um, you know, but it's interesting to see, though, you know, the we it's clear that there is a progressive movement in Texas. But it's also when you look at the top of the ballot in Texas this year, you're going to see Biden and you're going to see, uh, Hager. And that is not the, the face of the progressive movement. So, uh, I think, you know, there is a lot, a, a considerable amount of kind of, you know, whether you think it's pragmatic thinking or a sense of yeah. feeling uncomfortable with the, um, 
you know, with with how far left some people want to take the party. The, the, the state is not quite there yet as maybe they it is in other places. Um, but it's I'd also, also true. Matthew, I'd also observe that that Texas Hispanics are, as we have all probably talked about at one point or another on this podcast, a little bit more small C conservative than Hispanic voters in some other places, right? Like constitutionally, you see in the Valley a small C conservatism. Remember, Henry Cuellar beat Jessica Cisneros, right? Eddie Lucio beats his progressive challenger. Maybe progressive Hispanic challengers to the more conservative incumbents have a little bit of a harder hill to climb in the Valley, given the nature of the electorate. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, you know, two is not enough to make an assumption that that's a blanket statement. But I think those two races as bookends of this primary season are pretty interesting in terms of what they suggest. Yeah, I think there are some things to interrogate as we move forward as, as the Hispanic electorate continues to grow and, and how that sort of uh, lowercase c conservative plays out. I'm curious to, to figure out if this is measurable in any way, whether you know the experience of a Hispanic person living on the border versus a younger Hispanic person who just turned 18 in Houston. You know, we're talking about very different lived experiences, probably some different motivations. Just if you think about age generationals, and and I think that'll be an interesting thing to watch as both the yeah. progressive movement tries to get a better hold on Texas, but even just as the Hispanic electorate grows, we've always known it's not a monolith, and I, I'm curious if this will be kind of the thing that most puts a that puts a Finer point on on the idea that the Hispanic elector has never been a monolith. Well, as you pointed out in a story not long ago, we added two million Hispanics to the population of Texas in what was the period of time? Ten years? Is that mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Since since the last census. Since the last census, um, and so Hispanics will now be the largest percentage of the population of any of the group uh, ethnic groups. Not a majority, but will pass whites as the largest population group a year early in 2021. I mean. This is the moment for the Hispanic electorate, whether it's conservative or not, to really um, assert itself in terms of deciding the outcomes of elections. Can I go back to what you mentioned earlier about Eddie Rodriguez and Sarah Eckhart as a, as a race that we watched last night? I'm curious, Alex, since you were so carefully watching that race, Eckhart got to 49.6 or 7%, right? It was like 49.7 or something. Very, it was very close. It raced, right? She almost got to 50%. I saw that I had an Eddie Rodriguez press release in my mailbox today and I in my inbox and I opened it up half thinking that he was saying, yeah, I'm not going to bother going forward with this, right, with the runoff, yeah. but he's actually staying in a runoff. <laughs> I mean, you have to give, give Judge Eckhart credit. That is a strong performance to get to almost 50 percent in a race with that many candidates. That is strong. Right. Yeah, and especially since Rodriguez had the backing of, I think, the entire House yeah, except delegation for was yeah. backing him, too. I think, I honestly, I don't know yeah, how that you, one, but I, mean, um, I, I mean, know he had the support of the people we talked to. Yeah, no, you're exactly right about that. I mean, she, he, had, he had the establishment elected officials right behind him. That's true. Yeah, and I think from a very nerdy redistricting standpoint, that race will be interesting uh, when you start looking at a breakdown of, of where of which voters living where voted for which candidate. There's this like long conversation around whether racially polarized voting exists in a place like Travis County, and and that race might end up helping uh, Democrats as they're trying to prove that in court when we eventually end up there uh, in the next redistricting cycle when it comes to districts out of Travis County. True.
So is this an election, Alexa? Since since it was so close, is this an election where we're going to have to wait for the final mail-in votes to come in to see if Eckhart was able to avoid a runoff outright? That's, that, I mean, that's the vibe I'm getting. That was Alexa. That was your point last night, that if she's at 49.7% and we have a ton of mail-in ballots in Travis County, that could tip the race, couldn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. If I'm Eddie Rodriguez, mm-hmm. I'm not going to concede this anytime soon until every single mail-in ballot and provisional ballot on top of that is counted because that could keep her from under 50%. We know Travis County had issues and people trying to apply for mail-in ballots. We know some people got their ballots very, very late in the process. And that would have, if they wanted to make sure their votes came in, they could have gone into a polling location. Some of them could have surrendered their ballots. Some of them could have voted provisional as like, the, the, it's a very complicated state law, but it's how it plays out. So if I'm Eddie Rodriguez, I am not conceding until every single ballot is is counted. So we could be waiting a little bit on on the result of that one. Okay, well, we talked about how the races went. Let's talk about how voting went. Uh, You know, election administrators had talked about using the low turnout runoffs basically as a test run for some of the new processes they had to put in place uh, for voting during the pandemic. Obviously, there were no major meltdowns. We didn't have people waiting five or six hours to vote in Harris County. Even the reports of sort of malfunctioning equipment um, or websites indicating incorrect wait times, those were sort of pretty minimal as well. But I do think that the runoffs revealed these other strains in the system. You know, in some counties like Bear, polling places were closing at the last minute because there weren't enough workers willing to run the election during a pandemic. That's absolutely probably going to get worse for the general election when we're running even more sites with even more people voting. Uh, but I think that the issues were also really centered on the voting by mail system, right? Like there, there's this information gap that exists because it's so oddly used in the state. And when we think about the alternatives to voting inside a polling place that will be needed for November, I think there's a pretty there's a pretty big issue that we could be heading toward when it comes to mail-in balloting in November, sort of putting aside the debate over whether it, eligibility should be expanded or not, even just the information gap about how to use it could be a pretty big issue. Uh, but, you know, what did you all make of, of how voting went, not just last night, but over the last two weeks? I mean, even going back beyond the last two weeks, it feels to me like the last year, every little like sign of, is this a good sign or a bad sign for how November is going to go? Every little piece of information has pointed to it's not going to go well in November. You know, whether it's uh, all the things you talked about, the elimination of straight ticket voting, the the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic, the fact that um, the uh, election night returns were just a complete mess yesterday. And, you know, some, some kind of like abstract art, you know, being put out by the Texas Secretary of State's office in terms of like what the, the vote breakdown was. Um, you know, the, the turnover we've seen at the Secretary of State's office, the turnover we've seen at local county places. I mean, the it is... Uh, it is, it's alarming how much is going wrong and has gone wrong in these, you know, comparatively low stakes elections in terms of turnout, in terms of, uh, um, you know, the amount of people we're going to see and the amount of attention that's going to be on these races. So, uh, uh, I mean, I, if it, there's, there's going to be a lot of things that need to be fixed between now and November. Well, yeah. Alexa- your, your story said it, said it very well, I thought, late last night. You know, we're not ready for primetime. 
November's coming and we yes. have many more problems to deal with than we ever knew. Yeah, I mean, I think you can you can objectively say that there needs to be some real interrogation of our rules and our processes and whether the burdens that the, that they impose on voters during a pandemic are reasonable. Like whether you're talking about the blind voter trying to vote by mail, even though the system isn't accessible and requires that a voter to either sign the ballot or get a witness to do it, even though they might be self-isolating. Whether you're talking about a voter who contracts the coronavirus and has to figure out how the heck they're going to vote, or even just the SOS reporting side and, and what the the garbled uh, results that we saw for, for quite some time tonight, what that the, the role that plays in undermining the public's trust in an election that's already going to be questioned in so many ways. How can that's the Secretary of State's office, which has one job, not be better at this? <laughs> I mean, seriously, could, has anybody been able to come up with an answer for why they can't be better at this? I think they have um, the, the new, I think we all uh, strongly miss their old election night reporting system. This was supposed to be an upgrade and it obviously has not worked out that way. And I think it's it, the new Coke of election results. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think if I'm, if I'm an elected official and I have an oversight capacity of the office that serves as the chief elections, uh, you know, leaded by, led by, the chief elections official in Texas ahead of this year and after this election, I think there are some questions to be asked, you know, even even drawing back to last year when we had this botch review of the voter rolls and what to expect from that moving forward to the reporting of these results. There are some real, real questions there, I think, for for the agency. Yeah, and this kind of breaks down into two different issues. There's the issues that kind of drive people like us crazy, like the inability to read the election results, uh, you know, an hour and a half after the polls close. And then there's the issues of, you know, enfranchisement and, and things like that. And, you know, uh, are, no one should be surprised that there were people who contracted COVID after the mail-in application deadline. Like, if you understand how this works, you knew that was going to happen. And there was nothing, there was no process, nothing set up in order to accommodate that. You know, um, the, these things are issues that just, you know, uh, there really needs to be thought put into how you're going to do this safely and how you're going to do this in a way that keeps, you know, safe, that, uh, that allows people who want to vote you know, to vote. And uh, they did not have the answers to those questions yesterday. All right. Well, on that note, that is all the time we have for today. As always, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to our sponsors this week, Lone Star College, the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, the Texas Association of School Business Officials, and Texas 2036. On behalf of Alex, Evan, Matthew, and our producer, Michael Ray, this is Alexa. Thanks for listening.